So that brings us to the next section of Paul's trials in Caesarea. This is chapter 23, verses 23 through chapter 26, verse 32. In this section, Paul has moved north to Caesarea, the heart of the Roman power in Israel, and put on trial by the Roman officials. Paul will spend the next two years, 57 to 59 AD, here in custody, and will continue to preach the gospel at his trials. Caesarea is where the Roman prefect, or also known as procurator or governor in our terminology, is stationed and located. This is where Pilate lived and was stationed during the time of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. It was during religious festivals like Passover, during the Gospels, at the very end, that Pilate would come down to Jerusalem and stay in Jerusalem during festivals because festivals had so many people come into them. They were more religiously and politically charged. More things could happen. He wanted to be there to shake people's hands and make connections. Also, just make sure everything under his control. And so they would come down there. But for the rest of the year, they would stay in Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea was an incredibly wealthy and, and powerful city. And so this is where he's being brought, where at this time it is Governor Felix who is in control. He has taken the place of Pilate after these years have gone by. Verse 23, Then he summoned two of the centurions and said, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, along with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen, by nine o'clock tonight, and provide mounts for Paul's ride, so that they may be brought safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter that went like this, Claudius Lysias. So this is the first time that the tribune's name is mentioned. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix. Now, it's not uncommon to address governors as their excellency. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. And when I came up with the detachment and rescued him, because I did learn that he was a Roman citizen, since I wanted to know what charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was accused with reference to controversial questions about their law, but no charge against him deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed there were there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also ordering his accusers to state their charges against him before you. A few things are happening in this letter. First, twice Claudius says, I rescued him. That's not exactly what happened. He didn't exactly come in and, Oh, Paul, you're being violated by these Jews. I will come in and rescue you and carry you off to the bar barracks and put you under protection. And, oh, but then he says, I came in and rescued him. And then he says, and later they, they, they brought a plot against him, but I stopped that and I'm sending him to you. The other thing is he conveniently left out the whole part where I almost flogged him without asking whether he was a Roman citizen or his social status in any kind of way. We don't need to talk about that, right? Because that wouldn't go over well with me. But third thing, and this is important, Claudius has now written in his own writing with his own signature under his own authority, this man is guilty of no Roman law. He has not violated any Roman law that deserves not only imprisonment nor punishment. This guy is innocent. 
Claudius is basically saying, without telling Felix what he should determine and how he should judge this, but he's basically saying, Felix, this guy is guilty of no Roman law. There's no reason under Rome why he should be imprisoned or punished or killed in any kind of a way. But he's a Roman citizen. I've done my due diligence. He is to be brought to you. And mostly, Felix would understand this. Felix has been governor for a long time. He gets the political ins and outs of the Jews and what they're like and that kind of stuff. And so if he knows that the Jews have tried to kill Paul and the Jews are plotting against him, then this is going to require a very politically powerful person to smooth all this over. Because remember, in some sense, Felix doesn't give a crap about the Jews. He hates them. He would love for them all to die and go somewhere else. But the other sense, you also don't want riots and stir them up unnecessarily because then you'll have to put the riot down and then Rome will have to determine whether you could have prevented the riot and if you could have, you'll be sacked. Or if you put it down the wrong way, you'll be sacked. So he also likes his political career. It's better to be in a crappy political seat right now than to be in no political seat at all. And so he's probably going to handle this. Verse 31. So soldiers in accordance with their orders took Paul and brought him to Antipatris during the night. The next day they let the horsemen go on with him and they returned to the barracks. And when the horsemen came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked what providence that he was from. When he learned that it was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive too. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. The other thing I forgot to mention that this letter also says is that Claudius is saying that Paul's accusers should be coming up to you to, to make their plaint. According to Roman law, if your accusers don't show up to accuse you, then the trial's thrown out. It doesn't matter what, I mean, unless Rome is your accuser, right? Like you rebelled against them. And I mean, or like, like, if you're brought before the, the, a court in America for murder or something like that, a violation of law, like obviously you're under the court now. But if somebody accuses you of like stealing their apples or something like that, or, or like slapping somebody and they don't show up court, well then the court's going to throw it out, right? Because this is based on somebody else's word. We know that these accusers have to show up and they have to state this to Felix himself or this is just going to be thrown out as a mistrial. Felix is asking where Paul's from. Because Paul should technically, as a Roman citizen, be tried under his governor of his providence. So that would mean Sicilia. So he asks. He finds out he's from Sicilia. At that point, Felix says, okay, I'll hear his case. And the reason he says this is because Sicilia has no, they don't have their own governor. They don't have their own governor. So Sicilia technically falls into this limbo state of whether it belongs to the governor maybe further north up into Asia or the governor of Syria, which is what Felix is, the entire western coast, sorry, the entire eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And so since Paul's already here in his territory and Sicilia has no governor, he says, okay, I'll take, I'll take this over and I will hear it. So that's kind of what's going on there. Chapter 24, verse 1. 
After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and the attorney named Tertullius. They brought formal charges against Paul to the governor, and when Paul had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, We have experienced a length we have experienced a lengthy time of peace through your rule and reforms. Okay, so let's talk about this guy. Five days later, the Jewish leadership come, and now they have their own attorney, their own lawyer that's going to plead and argue their case between for Felix. So they realize now, they realize the game has changed too. They realize that this is out of their hands, out of their control. They realized before Paul was in their territory, in the temple, they had control over him. He had violated, according to them, the temple courtyard by bringing a Gentile that immediately puts them under their sovereignty and their control and their, um, their discretion of what they should do with them according to Roman law, Right? They have the right to kill anybody who violates the temple. That's the one place that they have the right. So they had that. But then when the, the soldiers came in, they couldn't kill them in time. And now this like ping pong thing with the trials and that kind of stuff. They probably still have no idea that Paul's a Roman citizen. That that card has been played. And so they've now realized this is completely under Roman control now. Now they don't realize how much it's under Roman control. All they know is Claudius has seized this. Claudius has brought him up to the governor, Felix, and that he's now under Roman control. But if they don't really know about his Roman citizenship, they don't realize that they have no hope of getting Paul back. So at this point, they realize that they can't just go in with their, hey, he violated our religious laws. They have to go in with an actual attorney, an actual law, a lawyer who can like, who can argue from the law with the Romans to get him back. So at this point, what they have now is they're not going to be arguing whether Paul is guilty or not. Because all the things that they can claim that he's guilty of, Rome doesn't care about. Remember, it's the same thing that they did with Jesus. When they, they knew they could not kill Jesus without Rome's approval. The difference is Jesus hadn't brought a Gentile into the temple and automatically put under their domain. They had to go to Rome for permission. The other thing was it was the middle of Passover when all of Rome, Pilate, was down there. So you just can't get out of control and accidentally kill Jesus too. So they realized that they had to bring it. And where their claim was he violated the law with blasphemy, they go to Pilate with he is treason against the Roman government because he's claimed to be a rival king. Which Jesus kind of did claim to be a king, but he never claimed to be a rival king overthrowing the Roman Empire. But they don't have that necessarily with Paul. So, and they could say, well, he claims that Jesus is king, and, but Rome's going to be like, Jesus is dead. Like, where's Jesus? He's not here, right? They now have a lawyer in order to get Paul back. They're not going to try to get Rome to kill Paul because that won't work. What they're going to try to do is argue to Rome that they have the right to take Paul back and try them under their control and under their power. So that's their tactic. And they need somebody that is strong in his understanding of the law and well-practiced in order to get them back. But Tertullius is confusing because we don't know who Tertullius is. We don't know whether he's a Gentile or a Jew. 
there's some places in like Acts 20, chapter 24, verse 2, where he says, we, suggesting that he is a Jew. But he also, as you read through this, he keeps his distance from the Jews. He, he makes it very clear that he is not associated with them, that he's not part of them. And no Jew would ever keep their distance like that, especially from the powerful, the, the, the law. Um, that's interesting. So the we might just be we as in my clients and I, which would be even more ironic in itself that they have hired, maybe possibly, a Gentile to hear their case. And so once again, this could be just another strike against them in their hypocrisy. So they're claiming that they're going to kill Paul for a violation of the law as they keep violating the law over and over again. And they claim that Paul is a bad person for going to the Gentiles as they're going to employ a Gentile to hear their Jewish court case because they know that only a Gentile can make a good argument before the Gentiles to get Paul back. And there's no, I can't prove that. I'm not saying that definitely is true. But most scholars just say, the way that Tertullius keeps his distance from the Jews is unheard of of any Jew doing that. And especially, I mean, it's not like the Sanhedrin are unclean. The only time Jews kept their distance is when they were with unclean people. But the Sanhedrin is the complete opposite of unclean. And so that would just be another ironic thing in all of that. Tertullius begins to make his argument. Verse 2. When Paul had summoned Tertullius, began to excuse him, saying, We have experienced a lengthy time of peace through your rule, and reforms are being made in the nation through your foresight. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this everywhere and in every way with all gratitude. He is totally just filling him with sunshine. Like, he's going to him and saying, like, Oh, look. We have had so much peace in the land with your rule, Felix. That is an absolute lie. Felix was a brutal, brutal governor who was known for intentionally riling up the Jews sometimes just to get them to rebel so that he could put them down in an incredibly harsh way. In fact, it was many of Felix's policies and the way that he did things that would lead to the incredible Jewish revolt of 70 AD. One of the reasons that Jewish Gentile hostilities are getting more heated and more fracturous to literally an unhealing place, and that's eventually going to erupt into 70 AD. Like right now, we're, getting, we're in 58 AD, so 57, 58 AD. We're about 12 years away from 70 AD. But you have to realize 70 AD just didn't like bam, all of a sudden happened. It just got more and more and more and more heated up as time went on. We're getting to the point where the pressure cooker is building up a lot of pressure between the Jews and the Gentiles. In about 12 years, everything is going to absolutely explode to the point that the Romans are going to come in and smash, smash, smash the Jews, the temple, everything and just clean house, and, and in a violent way. The one thing that the Romans have allowed the Jews to have complete control over, the Temple Mount, and allow them to kill people, 
if they violated the temple, is the very thing that the Jews are going to destroy completely because they've had it up to here. And the very thing that the Romans have allowed the Jews to freely worship their God, unlike anybody else in the Roman Empire, nobody, nobody was exempted from emperor worship in the Roman Empire. And, and everybody was held to that. And nobody else was monotheistic. But the Romans allowed the Jews to be exempted and worship their monotheistic God in the temple. That is the very thing that they're going to destroy because they're so angry and done with the Jews. So that shows you a little bit of where this hostility is going to. Felix's policies directly led to this. He wasn't. This is all lies, absolute lies. And Felix would know that it's lies. But Felix also likes everybody thinking that he's this great, peaceful Roman. And he likes other people telling him that. And as long as everybody believes that, and that's the, pers- that this, the image that's given, then, hey, he might actually like you for this moment. But, verse 4, So that I may not delay you with any further... We all know how much you hate hearing over trials and that kind of stuff. And you'd rather be stuffing your face with grapes and all that kind of stuff. But you don't have to worry about this anymore. You can go back to your entertainment. We don't want to delay anymore. I beg you that you hear us briefly with your customary graciousness. We, we know that you're gracious. You've always been gracious. No, he has not. For we have found this man to be a troublemaker. Oh, yeah, see, you've given us lots of peace, and we've enjoyed this, but this guy is going to ruin all that. He's going to ruin your good reputation by bringing things. One who stirs up rights among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, so we arrested him. And when you examine him yourself, you will be able to learn from yourself about all these things, from him, about all these things that we are accusing him of doing. The Jews also joined in the verbal attack, claiming that these things were true. He asked for graciousness. He doesn't mean like in the way that we mean it today. Graciousness comes from a Greek word that is a quality that involved one's willingness to go beyond the strict bounds of the law because of one's merciful and reasonableness. The word here means you are a gracious person, meaning you're willing to go beyond the strict legalism of the law and kind of bend things a little bit because you're just that kind of a merciful, favorable person. Now, this isn't a bad thing because this is exactly who God is. David murdered a man, and the law demands death. And as Paul will tell us later, the law there, there's no wiggle room in the law. The law always brings death because we can never, ever obey it. The law clearly laid out that it was death. There's no getting around that. But yet David repented and he threw himself before God and God said, I have forgiven you because God is a gracious God. This is the very thing that when, when Moses says in chapter 33, let me see your glory. And God says, I will show you my glory, but just a little bit. And he walks by the cave and shows his glory to Paul, Moses, and it begins to physically change him. And this is very much what God says, I am compassionate and gracious and merciful God, extending forgiveness to the thousandth generation, but bringing judgment on people to the tenth generation. Meaning that my judgment will only carry out for so long, but my grace and graciousness and compassion will go on forever. 
This is exactly what every Jew and every Christian believes is the, the, the best nutshell description of who God is that summarizes character better than anything else in the entire Bible. It is the very thing that Jonah quotes when he says, that's why I didn't go to Nineveh. That's why I didn't want to preach to them. Because I know that you're a compassionate, merciful God who is gracious to the 10th generation, and I wanted them to die. This is the character of God. This is not a bad thing to look beyond the strict bounds of the law and show mercy and grace. This is the people who worship the golden calf. And God says, you deserve to die, and I have every right to kill you right now. And Moses says, please forgive them. And God says, okay. But in this case, what they mean is, will you be willing to overlook that this technically belongs to Rome right now? and kind of bend the law and just turn a blind eye and just hand them over to us and we will just make this all conveniently disappear for you. They know that they have no hope of getting Paul convicted. They have no charges against Paul that Rome cares about. And they have no conniving scheme like with Jesus that he's a traitor to try to manipulate it into a violation of a Roman law that they can get approved. Even Pilate saw through all that. So they're just saying, hey, I know you hate us, but we'll give you like a coupon of like not bothering you and messing things up for like, I don't know, the next year or so. <laughs> if you just kind of look the other way, right? You can turn that coupon in any time that you want. That's kind of the idea here. Just kind of look the other way, go away. We'll make sure it's worth your while in some kind of way in the future to come. We'll owe you because this is a debt society. And that's what they're really asking for here. Smooth talking, filling him with sunshine, and then hint, hint, wink, wink, just hand this over, and you won't have to worry about many, many things to come. That shows you how desperate they are. It also shows you how corrupt they are. Because this isn't grace and mercy because of somebody's brokenness and repentance and because of your love for them. This is asking for grace and mercy because if you do this for us illegally, we'll do something for you. And they're violating the law again. And they're invoking a word that God has used of himself to describe his character and abusing it in a dastardly kind of a way for their own purposes. Basically what they're saying is, you know what he is, though? He's a troublemaker and a riot maker. He, he goes around the entire Roman world just stirring up riots. And, and you know how much Rome hates that. And you know, hint, hint, wink, wink, if you let him live, he could start a riot that brings down the Roman Empire in such a way that they have to squash it. And then, you know, they always ask questions, who allowed this riot to happen? And you're the one who didn't deal with them and it'll come down on you. That's the same thing that they said to Pilate about, like, hey, if you don't kill Jesus, then we'll go to Caesar and claim that you're starting this riot by not getting rid of Jesus. And at that, Pilate's like, I wash my hands. I don't want Rome to come down on me. That's what they're doing again. Not as hostile as they did with Jesus, but they're kind of doing the same thing. And then they remind him, hey, he desecrated our temple, and Roman law says we have the right to punish him under our law for that. And then when you talk to him, I'm sure you'll find out after a while that he just kind of really 
ticks you off too and annoys the crap out of you and you'll want him gone too because he just kind of annoys the crap out of everybody. Every time he speaks, we just get so angry and we can't control ourselves. And that's probably going to happen to you too. Oh, by the way, he is the leader of the notorious violent gang of the Nazarenes. He's, he's leading this sect of rioters and gangsters of the Nazarenes. It's like the Amish mafia. You don't get any more vicious than that. That's what they're claiming. Now, Felix is not an idiot. I mean, he's a stone's throw away from Nazarene. He knows that there's no violent sect from the Nazarenes. They're the backwater, like, what? Who comes from there, right? They, he doesn't care. And he, he, he's, he knows this stuff really well. And one thing that Felix actually hates more than anything is the Jewish Sanhedrin. So that's why they've got Tertullius, because they, he's slick and he's smooth with his words. And that's what they're really hoping for. They're hoping that they butter him up and, and make him feel good and then say, we'll take this off your hands. You don't have to worry about it. Caesar will never come down on you. That's really what you want. You have to realize that on the outskirts of Rome, most trials were just, I don't want Rome to come down on me, and I don't want to waste any more time dealing with all this crappy politics stuff. That's how they make decisions. There are two main charges here. First, that Paul was a pestilence of a disease on Israel. and was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. They actually use the word in the Hebrew, a pestilence of a disease. This is the words that were used of the plagues on Egypt and the words that God uses in Revelation of what he brings on the world for their sins. Like, that's how bad Paul is. He's like one of the four horsemen back. That's what they're basically claiming here. And second, they attempted to profane the temple. So kind of the, 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 the second charge is still the same. They defile the temple. But they've changed the first charge from he's violating the law Two, he's a pestilence on the Roman Empire, which is a little closer to remember what they did to Jesus. They change it from he's blasphemy the law to he's a treasonous false king who's bringing riots in the Roman Empire. 